You're listening to teaching from Midtown Fellowship, a Jesus-centered family on mission in Columbia, South Carolina. If you're interested in finding out more about us, our family of churches, or how to partner with us, go to midtowncolumbia.com. If I haven't had a chance to meet you, I get the privilege of serving as pastor here at Midtown Two Notch. I go by Ant. If I haven't had a chance to meet you, would love to meet you after the service today. Get to know your name and maybe get to know a little bit about you. We're very glad that you chose to come and worship with us this morning as we're moving through our Give series. This is a series we do at this time every year where we focus on the radical generosity that Christ has shown us and that he has given to us. If you have a Bible, go ahead and turn to Matthew chapter 1. If you have a Bible, smartphone, whatever you you like to use, go ahead and go to Matthew chapter 1. We'll get it started at verse 18 today. Matthew chapter 1, verse 18. Again, Matthew chapter 1, verse 18. I'll just get it started reading 18 through 21, and then we'll work our way through what this passage has for us this morning. It reads, now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband, Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. We'll spend the majority of our time today focusing on verse 21 right there. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. A little bit of just cultural understanding of the passage, this would have been a very difficult time for for Mary and for Joseph. For Mary... She's betrothed to be married. They're not officially, technically married yet, and she is pregnant. This likely brings a lot of shame to her. And then her husband, Joseph, finds out. Can't imagine how that conversation went. Right? Um, I'm pregnant. He's, I'm assuming, ready to divorce her. And she's like, no, 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 it's God's baby. It's cool. It's cool. It's cool. So he decides that he was going to put her away quietly, which is a very noble and commendable thing to do at that time. Because like at that time, usually when, when a couple got married, the husband had to pay the wife's family a dowry, which is a pretty significant amount of money, shows that he's invested in the relationship and the marriage and all of that. So likely, if he would have not tried to put her away quietly and done it publicly, he might have been able to receive that dowry back. I can only imagine what Mary is going through, how people might be looking at her as she is engaged to be married, but yet is pregnant. And then we see the angel of the Lord comes to David in a dream, tells him, don't fear, take Mary as your wife, that God is actually the reason that she is a virgin and still pregnant. And then he tells him, verse 21, she will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. The term Jesus at this time, was a pretty common term. Some say it means God saves. Some say it means God is salvation. So as he's saying, you're going to name him Jesus because he's going to bring salvation. He's going to save God's people. or He's going to save his people from their sins. And the angel is saying that this is his mission coming to earth. He will save his people from their sins. He's saying is the mission of Jesus. 
Now, the Jews had it confused a little bit about what Jesus actually came to do. This is a very clear, clarifying point because they were expecting a Savior to come. And if you were with us last week, you know we did the genealogy, and, and Matthew starts off talking about David, saying that Jesus is a son of David, meaning he's going to be a king. He's going to bring a kingdom in, and the salvation he's going to bring is through his kingdom that he's going to have. Now, the term Jesus is a transliteration of the term Joshua, which would have been very known by Matthew and the people that he's writing to. Joshua was this, this leader in the Old Testament that God used to defeat through military strength the, the enemies of God's people that, that might serve to enslave or oppress them. Right, So he has the same name transliterated as Joshua from the Old Testament. And also, Matthew's already pointing out, he's also the son of David. David was also a king who led God's people in battle to defeat enemies that might oppress them or enslave them. So see, the Jews had this belief, this, this understanding that this Savior that was going to come was going to free them from oppression to Rome, from the oppression they were receiving, excuse me, from Rome. The Roman Empire at this time was extremely oppressive to the Jews, and many others forced a lot of extremely harsh taxes on God's people. And they were expecting this Christ, this Messiah, this Savior, this King, to come and establish his kingdom in a way that overthrew Rome so God's people wouldn't live in oppression anymore. But this is saying Jesus isn't coming to save them from Rome. He's coming to save them from their sins. They wanted Jesus to come save them from their circumstances, their situations. Jesus' mission was to save them from their greatest oppressor, which is sin itself. Their priorities oftentimes weren't aligned with his. The question that I believe that presents to us today is what do we most desire for Jesus to save us from or to free us from? Or what do we most desire to be freed from? Is it our sin or is it something else? Matthew's very specific. He says that Jesus, he will save his people from their sins. He's saying this is the mission. He's going to save them from the sin that they currently have. The sin that is in them, he is going to save them from it. This is what Matthew is saying. This is what Matthew is pointing out. I want to make sure we have an understanding. Sin is always the problem. Sin is the root of all suffering. It leads us to more pain and more problems. The more we sin, the more we cultivate shame and harm and misalignment with our creator and with our design. Sin lies about God. When we sin, we slander the only truly innocent one. When, when we sin, we say God is not trustworthy. We say God's not enough. We say that he's not just. He's not Lord. We, we mock his lordship when we sin, and we say that he's not worthy of our worship. This is what the act of sin communicates that we truly believe in our hearts. Your sin is a bigger, bigger problem for you than your frustrating boss, your frustrating job, your frustrating coworkers, customers, clients, etc. Your sin is a bit, bigger problem than you not having the job, the career, or the success that you desire to have. Sin is a bigger problem for you than the stage of life that you're currently in that you're frustrated about. Sin is a bigger problem for you than not having anyone in your life that you feel like truly gets it at this time and gets and understands your situation. It's a bigger problem for you than physical illness even in your body. I believe we're a lot like the Jews, that we think our Romes are our biggest problem, so we don't appreciate Christ as we should. And oftentimes, if he doesn't give us what we really want, then we have no use for him. That's why so many people will walk, away, will walk away from the faith during hard times. 
because they actually weren't after a savior that would save them from their sins. They were after a savior that would save them from the circumstances that they don't like. They were after a savior that would save them from a life that didn't go the way that they didn't want it to go. So then when Jesus doesn't do that, if Jesus doesn't do that, if Jesus doesn't make their life look the way that they want their life to look, then they have no use for Jesus. Matthew's very clear. He came to save his people from their sins. This is what he came to do. Now, some, when Jesus doesn't give us what we're actually after, sometimes often more than him, for some, we don't fully walk away from the faith, but maybe we just stop participating as much. We're not into it as much. Prayer life dwindles down. Maybe stop walking in fellowship with other believers. Don't spend time meditating on God's word aren't sacrificially using our time to share Christ with others, aren't pursuing a relationship with him because he isn't being the savior that we thought he was going to be. Because he isn't upholding his end of the deal, so why should we uphold our end of the deal? It's often our perspective. He isn't the savior they expected him to be because they never saw him as the one who came to save them from their sins. I want to spend some of our time together today just proclaiming and making the point and arguing the point that Jesus came to save us. The fact that Jesus came to save us from our sins is actually the best news that you've ever heard. That is actually, that is the best news that you have ever heard in your life. I want to do that by trying to point out three specific things that Jesus saves us from in his salvation. Three specific ways, I should say, that he saves us from our sin. The first one I want to point out is he saves us from the penalty of our sin. He saves us from the penalty of our sin. Romans chapter 8 verse 1 says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. No condemnation. If you're familiar with Christian doctrine at all, you know that we believe that Christ came and took our sins upon himself, took our guilt, took our shame upon himself, was condemned to death on the cross as he died in the place of his people, as he died for the sins of the world. He took our condemnation, gave us credit for his righteousness that we might stand before God purified, clean, and holy in his sight. So there is no condemnation left. Jesus paid it all as we sing. That there is no condemnation left for the believer, that all the condemnation that we deserve has already been fully exhausted on Christ when he died for us on the cross. There is none left for you if you are in Christ. He has saved us from the penalty of our sin. One of the points that the Bible makes very clearly is that everyone is a sinner. Everyone other than Jesus has committed, I'm going to use the term, I'm going to call it cosmic treason. Let me explain what I mean when I say that. Treason is when someone who's a part of a certain maybe state or kingdom or nation sides with the enemy in the enemy's efforts to overthrow or take down the kingdom or nation that they are currently in. So we as people of God are no longer part of the kingdom of darkness, but now a part of the kingdom of light or the kingdom of God, as the Bible would say. Anytime we commit sin, we live as if we are still pledging our allegiance to the kingdom of darkness. So Paul says, put off the old self and put on the new self. And anytime we live as if we are still in the kingdom of darkness, we are actually waging war against the kingdom of God. Does this make sense? 
So when we sin, I just want to say why we deserve the penalty for sin, because treason historically and even now is one of the most highly punished sins in any area because it, is, it causes a threat to the actual nation and the actual kingdom itself. And so any time we practice sin, we actually commit treason against the kingdom of God. And generally speaking, throughout history, the penalty for treason is death. But we have been saved from the penalty of our sins. That our God knew how many times we were going to sin. He knew how many times you, you have already sinned, how many times you have sinned or will sin today, and all of the sin for you in your future. And he has completely, utterly saved you from the penalty of your sin because there is no condom left because he took that penalty onto himself. This is good news. This is good news. We are guilty lawbreakers. I think sometimes we like to not think of ourselves as being extremely guilty. We don't like to think of ourselves as criminal. We like to put real bad people in a separate category from us, right? Those type of people over there. I'm so glad I'm not like those people. God sees us as being sinful, having sinned against him, worthy of death because of our sin. And he sees everyone in the same boat. And so should we. I mean, if you're like me, I fail to meet my own moral standards. I ain't even just talking about God's moral standards. I fail to meet my own. How can I see somebody else lash out at their children in anger, right? And I'd be like, well, why would they, why would anybody do that? And then the same day, I do the same thing, right? Like, I don't meet my own moral standards. I don't, if, if, I, if you were to ask me what's a good way to live, even outside of what the Bible says, I don't even live up to that. We don't even live up to our own moral standards. We are all sinners. We are all lawbreakers. And then there's God. He's perfect. He's holy. He's righteous. He's never done anything wrong. He is the creator. And if God is truly just, that means that we all deserve to be condemned as criminals, right? If there's actually any justice in the world, that means that we deserve condemnation before God. We need to be saved from the penalty of our sin. We all need salvation or we face condemnation for sure. I was reading an article about a woman this past week, actually, and very, very interesting article. She was talking about how she no longer wanted to be a Christian, and I want to give her reason. I want to speak for her. I have a quote from her here. Her last name is, is Case, as you'll, as you'll see it, I think, throughout, uh, maybe in this, in this quote. It says, everything I had ever done in my life, I was like, all credit to God. Everything good is God. I am terrible. Everything good in me is God, right? So that's her quote. And then the article goes on to talk about her and explain a very specific day for her. And it says, that day in 2010, she realized that religion made her feel she had to downplay her own identity as a form of religious Devotion. So she stopped. So she said she just stopped. She was having to give glory to God for everything. She didn't see herself as being good. Now, just so we're on the same page, God made everyone in his image. All of us are capable of doing good for his glory, for the sake of his kingdom. All of us, he, he's given that potential to. And at the same time, because of what happened in Genesis chapter 3, we are all fallen. We're all guilty of sin. We all have a sinful nature now, and she didn't like the idea that she was sinful, that she's done so many things wrong. So she said she just stopped. She just stopped following Christ. It was like she couldn't fully be, she didn't feel like she could fully be herself and still ascribe to her Christian beliefs. So she chose what she felt like was truly being herself. But if we're actually honest, 
it's not like Christianity is making up something that we don't already know and saying that we're all sinful and messed up, right? It's not like, it's not like Christianity is giving, telling us something that we couldn't already figure out just by looking at the world that everyone is wrong and that no one is perfect. But we have to be very careful because there's this movement that's going on right now that's saying, hey, we, we need to focus on anything that's wrong with us. It's probably because of environmental factors or things in our life and things that have been done wrong to us because we don't want to feel judged. And we don't want to make anyone else feel judged. So we don't want to tell anybody that they're wrong. But that's extremely problematic for multiple reasons. Extremely problematic. Number one, if I could give a positive example, have you ever been around someone who is very aware that they have messed up multiple times in, in horrible ways? Have you ever been around someone like that? That is the easiest person for you to share with when you've done something wrong. Because you know they're not looking down on you. Because they've been humbled by the reality of how many times they have messed up. Understanding how many times we've messed up doesn't cause us to no longer truly see and understand our own identity. It actually breeds humility in us and allows us to better serve everyone that we come around because we walk in humility and not self-righteousness. And one of the biggest things that the church has been criticized for over and over again is that we're hypocrites and that we're self-righteous, that we look down on everyone. So you have some people saying that Christianity is messed up because it's telling everybody that they're wrong. And that they need to turn and repent and follow Jesus. And some people saying Christianity is messed up because people feel they're too self-righteous. So people will find a way, no matter the angle, to point out what they believe is wrong with Christian doctrine. But let me say this. Not only does our understanding of our own sinfulness breed humility in a way that helps us to love and serve others, especially those who understand their wrong and the things that they've done wrong, but this self-awareness also allows us to truly love and appreciate our God. Because if you've only sinned a little bit, then God's grace and God's mercy is not really that much to talk about, right? It's not really that much to talk about. But if you know that you have committed cosmic treason over and over again, and he continues to forgive you every single day of your life for everything that you've ever done wrong, then maybe you have reason to rejoice. You got reason to give an amen, say a praise the Lord, hallelujah, something. If you understand how much you have truly been saved from, I want to say it this way, for the Christian, being honest with ourselves with how much sin we have committed actually fuels our joy when we are aware of the grace and mercy of God. That it actually cultivates both humility and joy in the heart of the follower of Jesus. It allows us to walk in humility and not look down on others, be real and honest with ourselves and with others, live in gratitude as we understand the depths of God's love. Understanding the depths of our sin allows us to know that we are truly loved. It allows us to know that we're, not only are we truly loved, but we're truly loved by someone who looks beyond our, fa our, our faults and actually has a persevering love towards us, a love that will not give up because we know that he loved us in our sin. It's a huge blessing to be able to admit that we are sinners and know that he has saved us from the penalty of our sin. And that if we're in Christ, we will never be condemned for our sin because Christ was condemned in our place. He saves us from the penalty of our sin. He also saves us from the power of sin. He also saves us from the power of sin, the penalty of sin and the power of sin. I want to point out Colossians chapter 1, verse 13. It reads, he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved 
son. That word domain there means a territory ruled by a single ruler or a government. I just See, I just love how thorough the salvation of Jesus is. He saves and res- as he saves and rescues us from our sin, not only does he save us from the penalty of our sin for everything that we've done wrong, but he also progressively saves us from the power, the domain that sin oftentimes has over us. Jesus says that all who practice sin are enslaved to sin. Paul says that he has delivered us from the domain of darkness, from the rule of sin, that sin no longer masters us. Part of the reason we're so guilty of sin is that sin enslaves. It puts us in its bondage and it causes us to live in a way that God does not ordain. So biblically speaking, you don't practice sin simply because you disagree with God. You don't practice sin simply because you just so happen to enjoy doing things that God doesn't want you to do. You don't practice sin simply because God is just being strict and never letting you do anything that you want to do. No, what we're saying here is that we sin because we're being mastered. We're sin because sin is exerting a force, a power over us that we can't escape in and of ourselves. It's not just that we choose to do wrong, we're trapped by a power that in and of ourselves we are not able to free ourselves from. And you felt that before, right? You felt that before with maybe a sin pattern in your life, maybe you've been praying about it for a decade or two now. And you're looking at yourself and you can't believe that this is still an issue, that this is still a struggle. God, how can I continue to struggle with this? Maybe you can see how it's damaging you. Maybe you can see how it's damaging others. Maybe your family, your friends, your loved ones, you can see how problematic it is. But even as you try to pull yourself away, you feel trapped. That is because sin enslaves. Jesus says all who practice sin are enslaved to sin. But he came to save us from the power of sin. Now, at that time, there were two primary ways that someone who was captive can be set free. Someone who was enslaved could be set free, oftentimes in two different ways. The first way was by paying a ransom. A ransom is, is any type of, of money that's made, pay, a payment that is made so that someone can be freed from their captivity, freed from their captor. So a ransom is one way that people were set free. Another way people were set free was a more powerful kingdom that came in and overthrew the kingdom that was holding the captives, in, the captives excuse me, enslaved. If you're looking for a reason to say amen, I'm about to give you two of them. Mark chapter 10, verse 45 says, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So we're set free by the power of sin because Jesus came in and paid the debt, paid the penalty that we deserve with his life and his death is our ransom. But there's another reason as well that we are saved from the power of sin. Colossians chapter 2, verse 15 says, He disarmed the rulers and authorities, referring to the kingdom of darkness, and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. The context here is Paul is saying that God the Father actually put the leaders of the kingdom of darkness to open shame by triumphing over them through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So he, as thoroughly as one could possibly do, has freed us from the domain and the power of sin. He paid the price with his life and then he got up out of the grave with all power and authority in his hands and overthrew the kingdom of darkness so that the slaves can be set free. He paid the price for our ransom and overthrew the kingdom of darkness. We have been saved from our sins. I want to encourage you today that the Virgin Mary gave birth to a son. His name was Jesus, which means Savior, and he came to save his people from the enslaving power of sin. Through the cross, through the empty tomb, he paid the debt for our ransom, and he overthrew the kingdom of darkness so that Satan and sin can have no hold over you, son and or daughter of God. 
So here's what that means for us. You truly growing out of sin is not primarily just a matter of you trying harder. You growing into maturity towards God and away from sin is not primarily a matter of you learning more. It's not primarily a matter of you getting good advice. It's not primarily a matter of you doing anything. It's primarily a matter of Christ coming and freeing you and setting you free. This is what it means to be saved. I'm not saying don't try hard. I'm not saying don't take good advice. I'm not saying any of those things. I'm saying, but when it comes down to it, what you need is freedom and salvation, which can only be found in Christ. Can only be found in Christ. So if you want to grow in Christ, if you, if you want to know him more, if you want to be more like him, if you want to grow in holiness and righteousness and godliness, you need to know Christ more. Hear me on this. Whatever sin issue that might have come up in your mind throughout this sermon, the thing you primarily need to grow away from that and grow towards Christ is to know Christ more. Is to walk more closely with him. It's to walk more in step with him, to believe him more, to trust him more, to love him more, trusting that he will change you as you seek him more. What you need is a conquering king. Good, good advice isn't good enough for the problem because the problem is slavery. The problem isn't a lack of knowledge. The problem is slavery. And that's why when you come up in here on a Sunday, you're not going to get a sermon that's, that's primarily a bunch of Christian cliches and good advice. At some point in this sermon, you're going to hear Jesus Christ proclaim King of kings and Lord of lords who offers salvation to his people because that is what we all need, not just on Sunday, but every single day. So we will proclaim Christ. We will proclaim him in his power. We will proclaim his forgiveness. We need preaching. We need singing that points our minds and our hearts towards Jesus over and over again. You need friends and you need family in your life that will point you to Jesus over and over again. If you are part of one of our life groups, we need for you to continue to point everyone who's in your group to Jesus Christ, King of kings, Lord of lords, to whom every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is Lord. He is who we need because he is the one who came as our Savior who will save us from our sins. He is who we need. Jesus came to save us from the power of sin. He came to rescue us. But if we're going to be honest, and we need to be honest with ourselves today, we need to be honest. Sometimes we don't want to be saved from the power of our sin. Sometimes we don't desire salvation. I think part of the reason that we don't worship Christ as we should is because he's trying to take us, take away from us something that we really want. Something that we really desire to continue to hold on to. He's coming and saying, I'm trying to free you from that. And so many people have sought to distance themselves from Jesus because they have chosen the thing that he is trying to take away from us over choosing him. This is what sin is. This is what sin is. It causes an internal conflict. It turns us into double agents where we're inside of the kingdom of heaven yet fighting against the king. Because ultimately, he wants to take things away from us that we don't want him to take. Oh, we love being saved from the penalty of our sin. Hallelujah, praise the Lord. With a T on the end. The miracle of Christmas, Jesus coming as a baby, I think it often doesn't give us the joy that it should because we oftentimes prefer our sin over our Savior. 
And when we do this as Christians, we live like slaves who have been set free but prefer the bondage. But actually prefer the slavery over the freedom that he offers us. And now I love what Thomas Watson says. This is one of my favorite all-time quotes. Until sin be bitter, Christ will not be sweet. Until sin be bitter, Christ will not be sweet. Until you hate the taste of your sin, you will not enjoy the sweetness of Christ as you should. We won't love Jesus coming until we hate what he came to take away. When we truly hate and loathe the sin that is corrupting our hearts, that is hardening our hearts, there will be no one that we love more than Jesus. If what you hate more than anything is sin, there is no one or nothing that you will love more than Jesus because he comes to save his people from their sins. I want to talk to you. Don't raise your hand. Rhetorical question. Anyone in the room spiritually dry? One of the things I often say to people who tell me that they are feeling spiritually dry, I like to ask the question, when's the last time you've grieved over your sin? You're finding Jesus unappealing right now. He's not very attractive to you right now. You don't really desire him right now. Does your sin bother you? Does your sin grieve you? Does it hurt you to be able to see the sin that you have? Oftentimes we pray for joy in Christ, and I think that's very important. I think we also need to pray for grief over our sin. I think we also need to pray, God, break my heart over the things that break your heart. God, give me a grief, cause me to hate, cause me to loathe my sin, that I might love you more, that I might desire you more, that I might be more grateful to you because you come to take away and save me from my sin. He saves us from the penalty of our sin. He saves us from the enslaving power of sin. And one day he's coming back to save us from the presence of sin. The presence of sin and all of its effects. Philippians chapter 1 verse 6, I love this verse. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. He's describing a process here. See, he talks about he started the good work, and then he also talks about the day of completion at the day of Jesus Christ. He's talking about salvation and freeing us from the power of sin as a process. We call that sanctification. We know that it's sanctification. He's saying, Paul is saying, I know for sure, I know for certain that the one that started this good work is going to bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. I want to tell you why that's encouraging to me, because there are sin struggles in my life that I'm so tired of. I feel like there's no progress. Sometimes I feel hopeless about it. And he's saying, no, 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 no. If he began the good work, you can trust that he's going to finish it. If he started working in you and convicting you of sin, he is the one responsible for bringing it to completion. He's stronger than you are, and more importantly, He's stronger than your sin is, and he will finish the good work that he has started in you because he saves his people from their sins. This is good news for anyone who's ever felt hopeless. This is good news for anyone in the room who's ever felt like I can't get past this. And you're probably right on your own that you can't. But I want to proclaim a savior to you today, the son of David, the son of Mary, whose name is Jesus, the savior who comes to save his people from their sins. And he will rescue you from every sin that you've ever committed, any habit, any pattern. He will rescue you. You've never heard better news than the fact that he came to save his people from their sins. He came to save his people from their sins. And I, and I get it because fighting sin is hard. 
Walking in freedom is difficult. Putting off the old self and putting on the new self, this is difficult. This is a process full of mess-ups and relapses and us continue to fail over and over and over again. But I'm grateful that I'm in the hands of the one that will save his people from their sins. Will bring to completion the work that he started in me. He started the work. I'm going to tell you something about Jesus. If he starts something, he's planning on finishing He's not planning on leaving anything that he starts unfinished. He's going to complete his work. He is faithful. I need that because I mess up all the time. I'm not reliable enough. This war against sin, I'm not reliable enough for it all to be on my shoulders. I need someone stronger. I need someone better. I need someone more powerful than me. Sometimes I feel strong. Sometimes I feel weak. But my salvation from sin, praise God, doesn't rest on me. It rests on him. And on that glorious day, that baby that was in the manger in Bethlehem, he's coming back on a white horse with all power and all authority in his hand. He's going to have a crown on his head, and he's going to defeat the kingdom of darkness once and for all. And I love the way Revelation chapter 20 puts it. In Revelation chapter 20, verse 10, it says, And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. So he's saying Satan, the leader of the kingdom of darkness that has enslaved us, is getting thrown into the lake of fire. Jump down to verse 14. says, Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. Here's the beautiful thing about those verses. I don't know if you caught what he just did. He said, the thing that enslaved you and captured you, I'm going to capture it and enslave it. He said, Satan who came in and tempted Eve to sin and caused all of us to be in bondage and enslaved to sin, don't worry, I'm going to enslave him and I'm going to enslave the whole kingdom of darkness and I'm throwing it into the lake of fire where it will never be able to get out. So not only does he save us from our captor, but he captures our captor and throws them in slavery themselves. What a glorious salvation we have. What a glorious salvation we have. And here's the thing, I haven't even told you the best part yet. I have not told you the best part yet. The best part isn't what he saves us from. The best part is what he saves us to. I'm going to read verse 22 and 23, same chapter, Matthew chapter 1. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord has spoken by the prophet. These are big words by Matthew. He's saying that Jesus coming to save his people from their sins took place because of this promise that we find in the book of Isaiah about the coming Savior. Verse 23. This is the prophecy. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. He's saying all this took place to fulfill the prophecy about God, Emmanuel, coming to us. He's saying there's going to be a virgin who's going to give birth to a son. They're going to call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. So he doesn't just save us away from something. He saves us to something. He doesn't just save us away from sin. He saves us to himself. He doesn't just take away our sin. He actually gives us himself. His salvation is two-sided. He takes away our biggest enemy and gives us the greatest gift ever, which is God himself. Emmanuel, God with us. He loves to be with his people. Genesis to Revelation, this God loves to be with his people. He loves it. We serve a God who walked in the garden in pursuit of Adam and Eve because he loves to be with his people. We serve a God who came down in a cloud of fire in Exodus to guide his people out of slavery and towards the promised land because he loves to be with his people. He had his people build a tabernacle and a temple and his presence, the glory cloud, came all the way down to the earth to mankind's level because we serve a God that loves to be with his people. 
He told his people, and even after they sinned against him and turned to all other false gods and ended up having to leave their land and getting exiled, as they were having to cross the rough terrains, he's the guy who in Isaiah told them that he was going to be with them no matter what they had to go through. And he's the guy that when he came as a man, touched the leper. I don't know if you know what that means, but the leper was seen as unclean. No holy man was supposed to touch a leper because then it would make you unclean. But see, Jesus was different from all the other righteous people, all the other godly people of his day. He says, no, 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 no. I want to be with my people. I'm going to touch the leper and heal the leper of his uncleanness because he loves to be with his people. We're talking about the one that came down and ate and spent time with sinners and outcasts because he loves to be with his people. We're talking about the one who came and saved us by relating with us so much that he took our sin upon himself and died in our place because he loves to be with his people. Then he got out of the grave to go and prepare a place for us so that we can go and be with him forever because he's a God who loves to be with his people. The best part of salvation from sin means we get God means we get to go and be with him forever. He is the greatest gift. He's the gift. He had to get rid of the problem of sin so that we could be with him, Emmanuel, God with us. This is why we celebrate at Christmas. We celebrate the fact that he came to us so that we could be with him, Emmanuel, God with us. He loves being with his people so much that his name is Emmanuel. And Matthew says that he came and was born of a virgin to fulfill the prophecy that he will come and be Emmanuel. God with us. The gift of Christmas is that through faith in him, we can be saved from our sins and we can get God. We can get to be with him. We can know him and be known by him. We can love him and know the love that he has for us. We can have a friend that is with us literally 24 hours a day and seven days a week who desires communication with us, who desires relationship with us. We get him. And that is far worth the price of sacrificing anything else. The creator is always worth more than the creation. The creator is always worth more than the creation. Anything he is causing you to give up that you might know him more is always a worthy sacrifice because we get him. He gets our sin put on him and we get him. In just a few moments, we're going to partake in communion together. As we do that in remembrance of him, I want us to remember that he came and died in our place and was raised from the dead that we might go on to be with him. I'll pray for us, and then we'll open up our time of communion. Father, thank you for sending your son. What a gift to us. He was with you forever. You, you always had, you always enjoyed being with him, but you shared him with us. You sent him so that we might know you and be with you, that we might be saved from our sins, because the, the worst thing that sin does is separate us from you. Father, if there's anyone in this room now that is relationally separated from you, that is distant from you because of sin, because they haven't turned from sin and placed faith in you, Father, I pray that you would grant them beautiful, sweet repentance right now. That they would know the joy of turning away from sin and turning to you. That they would know the joy of just being able to be with you, just being able to know you every day of their lives in this life and for the rest of eternity. We thank you for your gift today. 
Will you help us remain mindful of this throughout this season, throughout all the busyness, throughout all the the to-do lists and maybe all the travel? Will you help us to remember and savor the truth that we get you? You saved us from sin. You got our sin, and we got you. And we thank you so much for it. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen.